Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Performance Coordinator and Analyst at the University of California, San Diego, Lauren Green. Thanks for tuning in to episode 303 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I am speaking to Lauren Green, who is the performance coordinator and analyst at the University of California, San Diego. So this conversation came about after a recommendation from a previous guest of the podcast, Eric Renahan, when I was speaking to him about his go-to guys when it comes to the use and application of force plates and force plate data. First on the list was Lauren, coming from a background in the MBA and now finding himself at the University of California, San Diego. And in this episode, we discuss loads of things around force plate and force plate analysis, but mainly around where it fits within a rehabilitation setting, and also how he separates the signal from the noise when it comes to the amount of data that can be generated from force plates. So if you are interested in getting some force plates or have them already and want some more clarity around how the people the best people out there use this technology. Definitely have a listen to this episode. It's a great one with Lauren. I um, hope you enjoy it, but I would love your feedback as always. And over to Lauren Green. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Lauren Green. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome Lauren Green. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. First of all, big thanks to the guys at Hawking for making, and Drake specifically for making the uh, making the introduction. He's pulling out his little black book for me 
every now and again to get get his contacts. So I really yeah. appreciate that. But Lauren, anyone that doesn't know who you are, you just want to give us a bit of an intro on yourself, what you're doing at the minute, where you are, and what you've done previous. Yeah, certainly. And uh, again, thanks. Thank you for having me on. It's actually one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. So it's quite a pleasure to be on here and uh, be one of the contributors. But uh, yeah, so obviously, name is Lauren Green um, at uh, University of California, San Diego. Uh, currently, the uh, sports performance coordinator and analyst. A uh, bit of a, a mixed hodgepodge of a title there. Uh, basically, oversee all of our uh, performance coaches that work with each of our twenty-three sports teams um, and about six hundred athletes or so. Um, and then obviously the analyst role is a bit more of a, you know, depending who you talk to and how you call it a sports science performance analyst, uh, a bit of our, our reasoning person, if you will, um, trying to put some, uh, uh thought process behind our actions and, and uh, guide our, again, our performance coaches and our sports med staff as best we can. Um, been there for going on, this is the end of year two. Uh, so been two years there now. I uh, was previously with the Brooklyn Nets uh, as the assistant strength conditioning coach and assistant with sports science duties there as well. And then prior to that, spent uh, about three years and some change with the LA Dodgers and their minor league system and as their Latin American coordinator. So I bounced around a little bit between the leagues and, and I found myself here in San Diego. Nice. I know it's a little bit of a, it's pretty a non-question really, but I'm interested to know why you've gone down the analyst job title rather than, like you say, like sports science or whatever, something a little bit different. Yeah, it was uh, it was a little bit mix of, of uh, uh, when I was getting hired, our, our performance coordinator, sorry, our, our performance director, uh, he was particularly looking for a uh, performance analyst role, and, and that was the uh, title that we, you know, he had um, posted up for the job and everything else and had, you know, sold to our administration. Uh, I personally, as a performance coach, had always been more intrigued with the why behind what we were doing uh, versus necessarily just the textbook saying, you know, X amount of sets and reps is what we do. I wanted to know why and why that was the case with certain athletes versus not and whatnot. So uh, the term analyst really wasn't uh, anything particular other than that's what we kind of had in place. But at the same time, I, I do hold a regard for scientists, as it were, uh, and the fact that they're you know, the job is to research. Um, and at this moment in time, we're not particularly doing, you know, research as it is uh, in its clinical sense or traditional sense. Uh, not yet. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be doing that soon here. We're working towards the PhD, but uh, at the moment we're not. So I really, um, you know, analyst I felt was a more true, truly fitting uh, of the role and position versus a scientist. Gosh, that makes total sense. Makes total sense. So what, what was the transition like from pro sport into a, into a collegiate setting? Seamless? Uh, I, I wouldn't say seamless. Uh, it was it was a little bit different, but you know, in, in honesty, I started working in uh, youth sports and uh, amateur uh, sports, as it were, uh, and always that's kind of where my heart's been has been on the development side. Uh, so really, my, when I got into professional sports, it was I wanted to see what the top level athlete was and wanted to see what the top level environment was, and and really connect the dots between the developing athlete and where they want to go, um, and almost work myself backwards, almost reverse engineer a little bit. So. Uh, in a sense, it wasn't completely, you know, different and, and, and uh, had to reinvent myself, so to speak. But I had to remind myself of what it was like to work with athletes of different motivations, different age groups, um, and just in a different environment with the coaches as well. We talk about a high-performance environment and the integration that's necessary between the medical staff, the coaching staff, the, you know, if you, if you use the uh, technical, tactical, physical model. Um, you know, there's a bit different approach to that and, and the focuses and reasoning behind decision-making. So there's a little bit of adjustment with that. But all in all, I mean, athletes want to do better. They want to win games. Coaches want to win games and compete. So at the end of the day, that all is pretty much the same. Gosh. So you're working across multiple sports? 
At the university? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the sports yeah. I hadn't worked with before. And again, another intriguing piece of the collegiate setting for us here. Um, you know, in the States, as you know, the, the team ball sports are, are, are predominant. Uh, but uh, internationally, the, the sports that we don't get uh, as much access to, uh, rowing, fencing, things like that. We've, we've got those sports at our university. So it's really cool to have a chance to work with crew and fencing and water polo and, and all these other sports as we have as well, along with our traditional team sports. Um, you know, some people, depending on who you're talking to, I, I think it's we're kind of lucky that we don't have American football um, in that sense uh, because it is such a, a large uh, socially driven and economically driven sport um, mm-hmm. that it, it, you know, really does it rule as king across most of the, the Division One campuses. And for us, uh, you know, basketball and, and soccer and baseball are our biggest sports. Um, but other than that, again, we have a number of other sports that you know might not be considered the traditional ones that uh, are just as equally competitive and, and great coaching staff and athletes to work with. So it's a really good bit of variety that we have. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I want to focus the chat, and I've just realized that I did thank Hawkin and, and Drake, so that's that's definitely right. But yeah. also, I think it was Eric, wasn't it, who actually – Yeah, Renahan. Yeah. yeah. Who I, I asked him who was his go-to guy when it comes to – false plot analysis and it was it was it was the man right here you so yeah big thanks to eric um as well as the guys hawking of course i used to I, I would hit up eric for fourth place actually i got with the nets and got connected with him through a couple of uh, buddies in hockey and and uh i remember i met him we were in, in chicago playing against the bulls it was towards the end of the season and uh the blues were playing the, the blackhawks i think the night before so it was one of those kind of day changeovers for the for the arena uh and i just met him down in the in the uh outside the locker room before they had their morning skate and whatnot and just badgered him for about 30, 40 minutes about force plate questions. So it was interesting and funny to hear him say that I was his go-to guy because I definitely relied on him for some <laughs> for some Come back around. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah, so it, that, that's what I wanted to focus the chat around. But one thing that always comes, uh, whatever technology you, you use or I talk about on here with, with guests like yourself, is the importance of asking the right questions and starting there rather than getting the tech, getting involved with it, then try to ask the, answer the question when you've already got the technology. So how important, firstly, has that been for you? And how do you go through that process to understand what the question is and therefore where to actually go to try to answer that question? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great piece. Um you hit the nail on the head. Really, it is. It is about asking the question first. And, and honestly, I, I can say I, I had to I don't say learn that lesson, uh, but I, I had to explore that myself. Um, and part of the reason when I left the, the, the Dodgers to go to work with the Nets, it wasn't uh, an organizational reason like that. It was the position that I had with the Nets was going to be more involved with the sports science pieces. And, and it was a, my chance to finally have this playground to learn and explore um, and almost do it in a safe environment. Because, again, I didn't have to make the purchases of the equipment. I didn't, it wasn't my responsibility. Uh, so I just got to come in and enjoy the bit, so a bit of the playground there. Uh, but in that, uh, again, I'm a pretty inquisitive person. That was the reason why I wanted to get into it. And, and I found myself having all these questions I wanted to answer all the time and just pop it up, question, question, question. Uh, and the more data that I had, the more uh, kind of objective information I had in front of me, uh, the fa- the more I found out that my questions may not have been very clear, that the information wasn't telling me exactly what I wanted to. And in almost this sense of we, we look at the hardware um, as the machine that's going to spit out the answer for us. Like it's, it is, it's the, the, uh, the cog in the wheel, it's the crankshaft, it's everything. And it's going to just give us this, this output, uh, as it's, it's the system itself when really it, it's one piece of our system that we want to utilize to find answers to questions. Um, and so really that, that was that experience of 
bit of trial and error in that um, was my learning process. And now I try to explain that to everyone that I come across, our interns, everything else of, of definitely understand uh, what the information coming from the hardware is and what it's actually going to tell you. And I'm sure we'll get into this more in the conversation, but, uh, you know, really, um, you know, if we use force place for an example, uh, I mean, it took me a few years to really understand that the, the kinetic information from a force plate is just helping us drive correlations to the kinesthetic, uh, uh, visualizations we see and movements we're, we're observing from the athlete uh, but it's not telling us the kinesthetic information right it's telling us just the kinetics and that's all it is uh, but it takes the the coach or the administrator or the, the you know the practitioner's knowledge to understand that correlation between uh, the movement processes and, and uh, you know in my mind when i first started i would look at a person move and i go oh i want to get them on the force plate and see what's happening and i realized like oh it's just telling me newtons <laughs> you know, I'm looking at all these things, trunk angle here, this and that, and I go, oh, and it's, it comes down to one number, you know, and there's force and there's time. Um, and that, at the end of the day, that's what we're looking at when it's particularly to that hardware. And it's the same thing with accelerometers and GPS and everything else. Uh, and, and definitely found more and more that there's a reason why these, these technology packages come as bundles and come as these different pieces, because you, you need a lot of them really to answer some of these questions sometimes. Uh, some question, again, depending on the depth and, and the, uh, the need of explanation of, of the question or the answer, excuse me. Um, you know, you might only need one or two things. And it's funny. We've had conversations uh, recently about uh, player wearables and um, load monitoring, if you will. Uh, and quite a lot of the times our answers come back to just RPE. Uh, <laughs> you know, just ask the player how they're feeling, how hard was it? Uh, you'll get a lot of information there and really, you know, it's the same thing across the board. So yeah, it's, it really is a process of, of, refining the question over and over again, really asking yourself, what are you looking for? Um, and I think one good practice I found was really just writing questions down when they pop in my head uh, and then expressing those with someone else. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in the community dialogue that could happen within your, your performance team and your sports medicine team um, and, and your colleagues as well. And so that's something I've definitely looked to do more and more often is, is just shoot questions around and bounce it off people and ask someone, how dumb does this sound? Or, you know, <laughs> have you ever thought this? Um, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, as a, going back to being a teenage boy or so, and you have your, you know, your classmates and your buddies and you, hey, you guys ever thought or... <laughs> <laughs> you ever watch that show? Um, and so, yeah, I, I find myself all the time, you know, people I like said, like Eric and Drake and those guys, and you, you, ever, you guys ever play around with it the, the, this way? Um, and you, you, you get a lot of fruitful conversation that comes from that, and definitely a lot of different perspectives you'll get, and that helps really refine the question, uh, you know, no matter what it is. And I, I think there's definitely a level of vetting that has to happen uh, before you just go down the rabbit hole. Uh, I'm, I'm the king of rabbit holes, and I said I've, I've taught myself some lessons in that way. Uh, so, yeah, definitely um, – Writing the question down, I, I live off of whiteboards now, uh, and then keeping those around so I then can bounce them off to someone else. Because the more I say the question and ask someone else, it comes back in a different way. I get to refine and ask someone else another way, and then I finally start getting to the root of what are we looking for and what are we really asking. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to false plates, then it'd be interesting to get a bit, of a bit of a journey if you potentially have that in your mind of what the question was when you first thought what well, the question was, which you thought you could answer with false plates. And then kind of where you are now of realizing what you can actually answer. And you've kind of touched on it there with you thought it was going to kind of tell you what, tell, yeah. tell you everything. Then actually <laughs> you, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I can give you a nice uh, anecdotal story here. But I guess, you know, while I was with the Nets, um, 
we the great great staff there, wonderful staff of of, of uh, professionals, and uh, just the team culture in general is very much uh, supportive of the professionals as much as the players. Um, you know, when we talk high performance, it wasn't just about the players, uh, just you know dunking and, and shooting threes. It was about the staff as well, being the best and most robust staff we could be, and seeking out people outside. So we actually had uh, Doctor. Uh, Keith Barr uh, come up from, or come down, I would say, <laughs> from uh, UC Davis, where he's doing a lot of study. He's doing a lot of work on the um, uh, tendon, musculoskeletal junction and the tendon rehabilitation work there. Uh, and he came and did some work with us uh, and also had, uh, I believe it was Carlos Felisabre that came in as well. Um, and we had this great, great talk. They were doing this potentially master class with us and, and uh, they, we got onto the force plates at one point. We had a whole talk on on uh, uh, force time curves and time under tension, uh, creep, and we did all these things about muscle tendon junction and muscle uh, muscle fibers. Uh, and we got over to the force plates, and we were going a bit through our testing assessments and and a bit of our metrics that we used in our our system at the time. And uh, you know, got into this talk with our physical therapist, uh, just about the kind of movement jump and why we do hands on hips and um, this idea of uh, flight time. Uh, contraction time ratio and what that was telling us uh, and talked about neuromuscular fatigue and some nervous fatigue uh, and then got into this idea of well just general rate of force development and and I believe I made a comment um, uh, about essentially about you know RFD being I'm trying to remember exactly what I said and hopefully I, I can't say it as poorly as I did then because I should be better now <laughs> but you know, something along the lines uh, of you know um how fast are the athlete is producing force into the ground or, or producing force, uh, essentially at an intramuscular level. Right. And, and kind of Dr. Barr at the time goes, well, well, well mm -hmm. not quite. At, you mm -hmm. know, we're looking at how, how fast force is being applied to the ground. It's a ground reaction force. And I go, well, yeah, but the muscle and, and it's applying to the joint, which is then going down to the ground. Okay. Yeah. It's a system measures. Okay. It's not the muscle itself. Uh, and, and it's one of those things. And in my mind, yeah, at the time I wanted to say rate of force development, it's the muscle contracting, creating force. Uh, but then it just took one sentence from someone else to go, well, rethink that. And now I go, all right, no, you're right. We're looking at a whole system at work here. Um, and really a combination of forces of, uh, of, uh, stress and strain across bones, across tissues, going down to the force through the shoes, into the force plate, reacting back. And it, and it just took this whole thing down. Oh man, that's a cascading effect there. That just, <laughs> took me down the hill uh, that had to climb back up out of really but in the sense it, it was a really good thing because again it made me just rethink and break back down but uh, I think definitely that's this idea of uh, a whole versus part thinking um, and, and we're kind of and we're talking about analyzing systems if you will uh, but that I think was part of the biggest part of the journey was understanding that uh, you know the system that is at play when we're looking at the force plate I mean the system mass and it's and it's uh, manipulation uh, is not you know quote unquote equal to the the some of its parts that are within mm. it um and that to me i think was the biggest part of the journey of uh, so far um of really identifying you know what question am i asking am i looking at the muscle unit am i looking at the quad tendon um or am i looking at a whole system at play together and i'm biasing positions and biasing uh levers if you will um to identify you know where the priority of that movement or force production might come from and i think that's that's been a big uh, awakening for me across the board Mm -hmm. So just dialing that down into kind of a day-to-day -day running of what goes on at the university, where are, where are force plates positioned and why do you decide to use them to – what information does that give you that you couldn't get elsewhere to actually inform what's going on 
an athlete level to a coach to an administrator? Yeah, so that's that's the uh, <laughs> it's the one I always get myself in trouble with in a sense because I'm, I'm going to answer it with a question people don't, people don't expect. Um, we we don't need force plates. We don't need any hardware. Um, it's a luxury, and it's uh, we'll say it's a blessing, if you will, uh, because it allows us to capture a lot of information at one time. Um, and, and in essence, where we wouldn't be able to with more. Uh, the right word to say i'll say older tools if you will um you know let's say with a vertec um uh you know jump measurement device it's great for absolute measurement we still use those we use those with our basketball and volleyball teams Uh, absolute height matters you know if you play in those sports how high you can get is is a big piece of it um and so that's still a part of the testing protocol approach jump uh standing jump um but we also know that the uh equations used to calculate for power assessment during that during that same test uh in the vertical jump test is not as accurate as we want it to be or not really at all um in some ways um and so really if you're looking at athlete's ability to produce power um is that your best way of doing it yeah probably not um and i actually i think it was um as one of the uh oh, i'm sorry i'm blanking out right now but one That's of the things they had on, on hawkins uh mm. uh podcast just said uh, i think it was last week um andy mcdonald it might have been um and he was, he was talking about to jump momentum um and i, I thought it was a, a brilliant way because i talked about oh, john, john mcmahon john mcmahon uh, mcmahon excuse me excuse yeah me. yes oh, yeah that's yeah, yeah, right just uh, came to the end yep yeah. yeah. and uh i've had a few talks with with uh dr jason lake about fluffy metrics as he calls it yes. um and power being one of those another one there but yeah this idea that we're going to accomplish uh an idea of wrapping up a whole system of and, and network of, of different uh measurements together to give us one big puffy metric that tells us everything uh which you know it's not it's not very uh, advantageous in all situations we'll just say it can, it can definitely lead you down some some rabbit holes and things that'll have you chasing your tail but uh, nonetheless this idea of jump momentum and, and i thought it was a great point of why i brought it up uh but you know if we take an athlete of lighter mass or an athlete loses weight or changes weight throughout the season and you're using vertical height as an assessment um for their performance or the performance outcomes there can be some misleading uh, uh, changes in there. Um, you know, an athlete might not have gained strength, uh, but has lost mass. And now for the strength that they're producing can give them a greater output. Uh, they may have gained mass and gained strength and have the same output. They may have, you know, in, in, in obviously in combination between those in there. So this idea that just any one metric or piece of it is going to change um, uh, our perception of how we program or, or how we make decisions, um, it's a bit short-sighted. And so really for us, uh, the force plate comes in as one tool again, that can capture a bit of data. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, and it's something I remind ourselves all the time. So we don't go too far down the rabbit hole. It's simply for us, particularly with Hawkins, it's looking at vertical. Uh, we're only looking at the axis and, uh, that's definitely something to keep in mind. We talk about our, again, our team field-based, uh, ball sports, our soccers and baseballs and whatnot else. Like majority of their force production is complementary to vertical axis and vertical plane, but there's a whole you know other host of forces and um, that are being applied to them. And so it's really just a snapshot for us. Um, and so we use it as a simple way uh, to monitor uh, readiness on a weekly basis across multiple ground-based sports. Um, 
and yeah, I guess I'll take a step back for a second. It's it's almost like a thermometer for us. Uh, it's just a way to gauge where we're at compared to the norm uh, based off of a very simple reproducible assessment in a test. Um, and the counter movement jump for our ground-based sports and athletes, and even those that aren't, even for aquatics, uh, jumping is a simple human uh, action that we are all uh, very, fairly accustomed to. And there's not much teaching that goes into it as long as the, t- the only teaching that needs to happen is our test procedures, right? We, we do a hands-on hip uh, with, as again, for our standard kind of um, counter movement jump assessment. Uh, we do a host of other, of other jumps with uh, different teams, and I can have to get into that. But uh, as far as the, kind of the day-to-day uh, athlete, uh, counter movement jump for three and hands-on hips, and we have them stand still. And again, luckily, the Hawking uh, software um, keeps the testing protocol pretty simple and straightforward, and, and it does a great job of teasing out the uh, – the artifact and poor tests. Um, so actually we've gotten to a point where our athletes test themselves. Um, we've got a station we set up on, on a Monday and I, I mean, we drain the battery on those plates because uh, it's up running from 6 a.m. until uh, about three in the afternoon for the most part um, throughout the year. We'll have almost every, every ground-based team will get on there on a Monday for the most part. And uh, our basketballs and volleyballs use it about two, three times a week. Um, two at, at most, really three, if we have any return to play or athletes in particular that we're looking at. Um, but and it's really just a snapshot for us to be able to look at force over time and, and all those relative uh, uh, equations that we would use from that, st- from that standpoint. Um, it's a way for us to sneak in capturing body weight uh, without having to have a, a weigh-in and weigh-out session. Um, it's a way for us to actually we sneak it in like with our volleyballs. It's, it's built into their workout. Uh, so they actually, their, their coach does a great job of this um, where he loves them to have you know, kind of some augmented feedback, if you will, but just some, some kind of feedback in general with their training. Um, and so they might go from using a, a VBT device um, on certain lifts uh, for, you know, for ranges of intensity uh, to then having some, maybe some uh, shock training or plyometric training they might do on a jump mat, looking at contact time. Um, but their first set in their workout after they've done their warm up, as we call it a primer, uh, is they'll, they'll go through just a few jumps to start off on the force plate. And then that leads them right into now they, where they have their squad into their reactive jumps, anything else. So they don't even realize, we don't even use the word test. Um, it's, it's part of the training. It's, it's just part yeah. of the training. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a little bit harder to sneak that in with some of the teams, <laughs> you know, to sneak in with water polo to say that their jump is part <laughs> of the training. Uh, but for them, again, we actually, we don't even do the jumps. We just do, uh, as a part of our beginning of the year screening, with all the athletes, um, as we call our PPEs, our pre-performance exams, um, they'll do a counter-movement jump uh, and some isometric joint testing um, just for baselines. Uh, if there happens to be a lower limb injury or something like that. But again, with our aquatic sports, uh, you know, vertical forces is not uh, a predominant factor for them. So it's not as big of a deal. Uh, but again, within the rehab, if it might come into play or be of some use, it doesn't take much to have them do a couple of jumps before the, before the beginning of the year, just to have it in the file. Um, and also again, from a, if we decided to at some point a research standpoint, we've got this, you know, battery of, uh, of assessments we've done across the board with multiple athletes and we can tease out some things hopefully at some point. But in reality, again, it's, it's, it's just like a thermometer force. It's another, it's a strain gauge, you know, it's just telling us force over time. Um, and for those sports, depending on what we're looking at, uh, we have the ability to go back into that data and look at certain benchmarks uh, throughout there. But day to day, fight contraction time is our is our uh, fight time contraction time that uh, kind of uh, our side there is our uh, most predominant measure, obviously the, the jump height. Um, but, you know, after McMahon's talk of the day, I'm, I'm almost more uh, inclined to, I've I actually already changed that as one of our, <laughs> in our system, our AMS, I've added the jump momentum in there because I, I do think it's pretty intriguing to have a simple uh, way to assess. And, and it, I, I, you know, it's, 
without rambling on too much, but just the idea no, that <laughs> the idea that um, you know, just the physics of it, the simple physics of can I produce enough force to move this mass and create a momentum that's opposing to gravity? It's it's in its simplest form. It, it is uh, uh, it's what we're looking at, and I think it's a, it's a great metric that that's going to catch on quite a bit in the sense of its simplicity because it does already account for body weight and changes. It accounts for it, all those things in between, um, and it, it really simplifies that for as far as a performance outcome goes. If you truly are worried about ground based. Uh, uh, force production in the vertical plane. Um, it's it's a pretty straightforward metric and a way to look at it that is already relative to size and relative to to the athlete's uh, force production. So I, I think it's a great way to look at it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if uh, our starting center on our basketball team, if, if they're seven feet tall and the rim's ten feet tall, you know, I, I may not be as worried about them jumping higher and higher and higher um, as long as you know their absolute reach and their touch is where it needs to be or is, is in a good relative range. Um, I may be worried about their just reactionary off the ground and how quick they, they produce force, um, at least through you know lower leg stiffness kind of model um, or their movement patterns in general. Um, because again, the rim's not going to get any taller, and as long as they can get up there fast enough, uh, that's that's really as much an important piece is how high they get because getting up higher slower uh again in volleyball and basketball sports like that it's it's not any more impactful <laughs> for you not that helpful so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with lauren hope you enjoying part one so over in part two we continue the theme of discussing force plates and force plate data but we focus more on the return to play aspect of utilizing this technology so we discussed landing characteristics, uh, trunk rotation, which is a topic that came about from a paper on sports performance reports from uh, Martin Bescheid uh, and Matty Lacombe. Really interesting uh, article on their website, which I'm going to link to in this episode because we discuss it um, at length in this part two. We also discuss threshold and reporting right at the end. So really interesting part two coming up with Lauren. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc. 
have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. So on that readiness piece, I think that's it's always a really interesting one to kind of tease into because at what point do you make an intervention? How easy is that intervention? How easy is it actually to make in a practical sense? Like you're jumping at 10, training's at half 10, all these kind of interplay of, of, of wants and needs from different coaches, different staff. And yeah, it's just interesting how how you guys use it and how you guys potentially use it to actually make an intervention and make a a change should it need to be should it need to happen and, and when like how much of a change do you actually need to intervene all them kind of things come around in my head when we, when we talk about readiness but how do how do you guys facilitate all them moving parts to actually get readiness yeah yeah, it's um, it's it is a challenge. Uh, mm. I know it was it was a challenge, like you said, even in um, a smaller setting, if you will, team setting with you know in the NBA we have fifteen players, seventeen, um, and for us to do that then the same exact way, you know, and almost the time schedule exactly what you said, it would be at ten o'clock they're in there jumping, and you know team practice starting at ten thirty, and within that time period. Uh, I really thought it was actually pretty great. And there's a few teams in the NBA I know that do it. I believe it comes from the Popovich tree of coaches, but they call them vitamins. And, and essentially the, the, the uh, coaches and the athletes will have stations set up before the team practice. And so they'll have, uh, let's say, 20-minute block with the physio, 20-minute block with the performance, and a 20-minute block with the coach for individual work. And that would be the hour encompassing before the team practice starts. And so within that time with us, they come in, they might do some isometric tests or some jumps and whatnot. Um, and within that time, again, our physio was right right there next to us. The office is right there. And so it's it was a we had to learn a, our own bit of a communication system um, to be able to so as soon as we see, have our flags kind of set and they do the jump, hey, you know, it's right mm-hmm. to there. Uh, yeah. But it really, it comes with a bit of, of nuance and it comes with a bit of, uh, not even a bit, it comes with a lot of understanding of your athletes. Yeah. Um, and because when we talk readiness, that is a general, general term. Gosh. Um, and it's it's very easy for us, again, to get caught in fluffy metrics. Um, and not that any of them are bad or right or wrong. They're there, right? They're, they're tools that we've seen in science to show us some indication of readiness, whether it be central nervous system fatigue, whether it be neuromuscular fatigue, or, or uh, the part I think we often, not often, we, I myself and, and have seen other colleagues overlook um, is just the true muscular function there in readiness and locally. And I think that these are things we can't overlook. So for us, it was really identifying um, within the first sense, can we identify what this player's individual KPIs might be or their individual uh, um, kind of hangups, if you will? Uh, and some of the things I, when I first get an athlete that I work with, I ask them, are you aware of uh, your uh, you know, best way to put this is, is kind of your 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 trouble spots, right? Um, if you had a really hard game or hard training session, what's that part of your body that usually is the first thing kind of cranking at you and, and saying, hey, give me some love? Um, because that's going to be probably maybe the first place we look or at least starts down the rabbit hole of what might be leading into that. Uh, and if we have an understanding of that, you know, for us, you know, we had some players where uh, the so force plate didn't give us as much of an indication of readiness as an adductor squeeze. 
or, or hamstring isometric pull. Um, and so really for we, I can remember times where, you know, we're you know, kind of cranked for time and we're going, Oh, we gotta get the assessments in. And it's, you know what, we're going straight to the abductor for you and you go ahead and jump on the force plate. Um, because I know that that's going to tell us what we need to know for you at this moment in time. Um, and again, it, it, in all, in the best world, when everything's working and cranking smooth, you'll still collect all of them and you'll be able to see trends over time. But we found some and the athletes over time will tell you, you know, Last time we had the back-to-back game, the adductor was tight, and I noticed that last time before that, blah, blah, and I go, okay, well, now that might be our indicator of fatigue for you. Uh, at the end of the day, it goes back to that whole uh, analogy of, you know, the uh, chain's always strong as weakest link. Um, and if the athlete's aware, if we're aware of a weak link within that athlete's chain, um, then why, why wouldn't we, you know, assess for that? Because that is going to be the point of, of the tension part is going to break. So particularly with our athletes here at the university, it's a bit um, – it's easier and harder. It's harder in the sense of our total volume. Let's say we have just under 600 athletes, about 580 or so athletes across 23 sports. And again, the sports are so broad, there's different demands. Um, and we're fortunate enough. We, we actually are just becoming division one uh, program this year. Previously that we were division two for the past, I'm not sure how many years. Um, and, but for a Division II program, uh, we were very well-staffed, <laughs> very, very well-staffed. Um, we have four full-time performance coaches. We've got seven athletic trainers. Um, we also now have two uh, part-time dietitians that share a full-time role, so they kind of switch off on days. Um, each of them works in a clinical setting and also works uh, within some of our Olympic, uh, USOC and Olympic teams as well. So we've got a great well-rounded staff, uh, especially for an up-and-coming Division I school. Um, so with that said, you know, our expectations from our coaches and our admin is higher now, which it should be. We should have high expectations of ourselves. Uh, but there is that that those times of, well, we did this, we jumped in there. Why, you know, what's what's the next move? Where do we go? Uh, and we have to remind ourselves sometimes, like, one, well, they're athletes. Uh, you know, there's there's going to be ups and downs just because they're fatigued. Uh, doesn't mean everything is wrong and, you know, uh, you know wave the white flag. Um, and I think that's a part of uh, when we talk about readiness and, and fatigue monitoring, uh, we can sometimes lose sight of we expect them to be fatigued at times. We, we purposely are stressing them within training, whether it be in the weight room or on the, on the pitch or anything else. We are purposely adding a stressor for adaptation. Uh, so there's times, again, where we're almost looking for fatigue as an indicator. Have we reached far enough? Have we done 100%. enough? Yeah. Uh, let alone just when a time to back off. Um, and we've had to explain to the athletes sometimes where they go, well, I, I felt a little bit fatigued today. And, oh, actually, your jumps look great and your times <laughs> look great. So yeah. – that might be a mental, emotional cycle thing there. That's fine. And we'll address that as well. And let's freshen that up. But physically, you're good to go. Um, and so that's, again, it's from an integrative standpoint, we, we really have looked to to leverage all of our pieces in that sense. Um, you know, I'd worked to create a, an app on campus for our teams that uh, was essentially our, our RPE and our daily wellness, things like that. Uh, but we want to look at it all together. I right? want to look at it and say, you know, these athletes, how is their sleep? How, how do they personally feel they've recovered? Uh, now let's look at their physical uh, uh, metrics and see how well they've recovered and, and come back and where the performance is. And at the end of the day, again, like the jump, uh, for example, it's, it's just one performance measure um, that we keep in mind of as well output. Uh, but it's not everything for us. So it, it really is, a, there's a bit of nuance there and knowing our athletes of what their triggers might be. Um, but for the most part in the college setting, it's almost a bit easier in the sense of how the scheduling is. Um, let's say our basketballs, for example, they play uh, Thursday, Saturday, or a Friday, Saturday, some sort of end of the week kind of series, depending if they're home or away. Um, and so we they'll have a Sunday off traditionally and almost 99% of the time. So really for us, we look into usually do our jump tests in the day after an off day. Um, 
again, that we're assuming they should be back to recovered. We're assuming we're resetting the start of the week. So I said, okay, well, let's get you in and here and just do, again, a simple measurement to see where you at would be uh, compared to your norms. Um, and so luckily for us, uh, we may not necessarily make acute changes on that day unless, again, uh, you know, let's say an athlete is struggling from a tendinopathy that they, you know, suffer from. And we notice that there's just, they haven't quite recovered, still a bit of asymmetry there, things like that. Um, there might be some acute uh, changes to to their programming or maybe to their plan for that day uh, but for the most part it now sets a, a cascading effect throughout the week leading up to our next performance because that's really what it's about is what's our next performance uh outcome and look like our next performance date where they need to peak um and that's been a bit of a change for our coaches uh this understanding of you know the value of what is practice today worth and what's this week of training look like and what does this next game look like uh and that's that's been a bit different and that honestly was something i struggled with before i got into the nba uh but that was a different mindset and in baseball we play 162 games in 180 days um you, you play if you you know you just, you just play there's just no <laughs> and the game is physically is not as uh as challenging in some ways um than some of the sports. So you kind of have this day-to-day grind it out. Yeah, you're going to be up and down mentally, emotionally. You just kind of go about it. It's a skill sport, whereas uh, basketball, um, with the variety of the schedule in the NBA and, you know, the back-to-backs here, two days off, East Coast to West Coast travel, uh, you really do learn to prioritize the competition. That's what they're paid to do. Um, but at the same time, with that, you prioritize the big picture of the competition. And so, you know, that's the hot topic in the NBA, and it has been for the past couple of years now, of load monitoring, things like that. Um, and I often equate that to a financial management. Um, you can think dollars or think cents, if you will, uh, kind of mentality. And so if I'm worried about uh, my penny pinching every day and, and how much I have day to day, I can lose sight of how much am I saving and or spending uh, over the long term? What's my return on my investment? And I think that's the part for people on the outside of the NBA to to see what's happening on the inside is it's really about return on investment and and protecting the players from themselves as much as, you know, it's, it's it's less oftentimes now people think that the players are asking for days off. It's not, they're fighting us. They, they want to play. They're, they're, they're ballers. That's what they do. Um, no, you know, no professional athletes just saying, you know, I just, I, I go through all of this to sit on the sidelines. Uh, so it really is, it, it's us saving them from themselves because they will go out there when their knees are banging and barking at them. And, and is that happening or they're at a higher risk. Um, and so it, it's a challenging, uh, piece of maneuver between you know giving feeding them what they need to have to be motivated to play and compete and then you know especially when you have a game every day but then also saying is the next game the bigger game or what's coming up the week after that and there was a a, I said a great job of uh, developing that communication uh, pathway and system when I'm talking with the Nets and I learned a lot from that of working with those different pieces and that's what we're really working on developing still at the university because um, it's not an overnight thing it's not something you just put in place and copy a system from one place to another it has to be developed in-house I believe um, but the, the pieces of and understanding the integral pieces of parts of, of the communication uh, understanding roles and responsibilities um, and trusting those people in those roles to, to do their jobs and, and have their input um, and then also involving the athlete in that um, is a big piece that we've learned uh, in, on both sides. But I'd say now, especially in, in the collegiate setting, um, you know, we forget these athletes, they're students and people. Right? <laughs> so uh, it's, it's just a really uh, and again, this goes back to my my uh, love for the development side. But I learned a great deal working down the Dominican with the Dodgers uh, with that age group, you know, 15 and a half to, to 19 years old. Um, and what I'd learned a lot there was the, uh, the athlete themselves is still learning so much about themselves that 
it's hard for us as, as the scientists, as the practitioner to assess their readiness when it's so variable day to day, just from them waking up, let alone any stresses we put on them. I mean, they're, they're going through growth spurts. They're going through post puberty, the hormone changes. Um, and you take that into account of, you know, that's for any person that's just at home, uh, going through those changes. It's one thing, but now you take a child and you remove them from their home. You put them in a different country somewhere. You put them under different constraints of, of sleep and sleeping habits and, and environment of, uh, the training schedule of education, um, or lack thereof in some instances, um, nutrition. And so you put them in this blender of things and just shake up their whole world. And then day to day say, all right, are you on the steady incline? Are you linearly progressing? It's, 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 it's almost impossible to have. And so again, we are discovering as much about them as they are about themselves in that same moment. Um, and so for us, particularly at the university, I said with our wellness questionnaires and the fourth place, it all really is uh, to almost present it to them, to help them understand more. And they're going to gain consistency out of that, which then we can start to observe. Uh, but it, you know, if we go into it in the beginning and talk about in the, uh, asking questions, if I go into this, just saying, Hey, jump on the force plates. I want to see how ready you are today. And you get the snapshot. It's, it's going to be very misleading, very, very misleading. And just the, just even, I mean, uh, you know, just the, the performance of the jumps themselves, um, to have an athlete, I'm sure other practitioners that, that you've used force plates, uh, with any age population, but especially with youth, um, to get them to give you a true, max effort vertical jump day to day uh it, it's it can be a challenge because they'll tell you before they get on there oh, i don't have it today oh i'm tired <laughs> on oh, this and that well if you're saying that you're not going to give me a, a quality of a jump i need you to challenge yourself give me whatever you have um but again you know when you have an athlete for us uh, our, our cross-country coach uh, did a distance running coach did a great job of this with our wellness questionnaire um of just monitoring times throughout the school year of when our finals and midterms, uh, when, you know, when are, are their most stressful time from an academic standpoint. And then also those kind of lead into obviously uh, some of the holidays uh, as well in that mid-year time. So you're, again, especially with freshmen, you're talking about them the first semester or so going through college, all the stressors, then you add in for cross country as a fall sport, their season's building up and building in, uh, training's increased. And then you add in uh, tests and, and education parts. So you go into midterms and going towards finals as their season's winding down um, and training has accumulated over time and stress from school has accumulated over time. And now I'm getting the holidays where I miss Thanksgiving or so, or you know, America holiday day or, or maybe going in towards um, December and things. So you have all these different pieces moving together. Um, and, you know, if I just look at it and go, oh, well, their jump was down today. Well, why don't I look and ask the kid, you know, how'd you sleep last night? Oh, you slept three hours because you were studying all night and you were on the phone with your parents because grandma's sick. You know, it, there's a number of things that go into it. And so it's, it's never uh, any one piece of a snapshot. Again, that's for us it's almost reverse engineering. I just want to see at the end of the day, jump on the force plate and jump as best you can. And get, I just want to get an idea of your physical output today. And then I'll start piecing back together from there. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I just want to take a little right turn and go on the return to play aspect yeah. of using force plates. So one thing I want to start with is landing characteristics. Is that something that you rely on heavily when it comes to the return to play process and actually using the technology or is it something else or with or combination of? Yeah, I'd say, I, I, and I, I can't say, uh, <laughs> I would say it might be a little bit of a maverick or an outlier in this. Um, I, I do value the landing metrics, but yep. not very heavily. Okay. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because uh, again, traditionally in our ground-based sports, it's very rare that we just come down, land and stick and stop there's always a, some sort of rebounding or repercussion that happens from that. Um, and so 
particularly with, um, and oftentimes when we talk about landing characteristics and mechanics, we're looking at asymmetry metrics for the most part. Um, I prefer to look at those in, in that in that same instance. I'd rather do it in a rebound jump, a drop jump of sorts, a, a, a multi-jump uh, test uh, protocol of some sort, uh, because I, I personally believe that there's a connection between the anticipation of ground contact and, and its response um, versus uh, just the anticipation of ground contact and settling, if you will. And and so that, that uh, again, that reverberation, that repercussion off of the ground um, depending on the height, depending on the force goes into it. Again, from a training perspective, we can accentuate that with bands, anything else, whatever. Um, I think that's where those pieces come into play, but we're really looking at uh, how well does that athlete anticipate, uh, react and process those forces as they reach the ground and then return those in a manner that is specific to the outcome they're going for. Um, and, you know, basically for that being said, uh, there, there is things to look at within, within that. Uh, and I think it's, definitely more complicated than what the force plate will tell us. Again, I think you have to be looking at a specific uh, measure. And so like for us for return to play, um, our measures or KPIs will change throughout different phases of return. Um, and so what that, you know, for us, you know, in the beginning, let's say some of our ACL rehabs, uh, I don't really care for RSI or for stiffness measures per se early on. Um, uh, I'm looking at uh, a bit of asymmetry or lack thereof, um, just within force production or rate of force. Um, and again, depending on the test we're looking at, because that could be an isometric test, it could be, uh, you know, so let's say for our ACLs um, early on, we will do a uh, really start actually with the bodyweight squat on the force plates um, and just look at the force time curve to look and see if there's any convergence of when their weight is shifting. Uh, but sometimes you can see that with your eyes. Uh, a lot of times early on, especially when it's pretty gross asymmetry, you can see that with your eyes. And it's really just a vi we'll put the screen up in front of the athlete as a visual for them to see the squiggly lines, as it were, um, and let them kind of coach themselves a bit. Uh, and then we'll remove that and have them just go ahead and do it on their own and then turn it into a speed squat and then turn it into a bit of a drop and catch. Um, and then finally, for once they feel good enough, quote unquote, good enough to, to kind of catch themselves or to remove some of that inhibition, we'll go ahead and take it into a counter movement jump from there. Uh, we'll go into a counter movement jump in, sorry, two leg, two <laughs> traditional two foot counter movement jump and landing on one. Um, and it, there's no other metric to that other than um, actually the jump height on there. It's not even a landing one. Uh, one, I can see them land on one leg and if they do it stable and in bounds, whatnot, I want to see if their inhibition is there on the jump. It's a predetermined movement. It's precipitatory. They can do every, everything as they please. We coach them, don't coach them in any way other than hands on hips. Um, and I just asked them to jump on one, jump off of two and land on a one. And what we found is obviously with these athletes on the injured or defected leg, there's a bit of inhibition where they're going to land onto it. Um, and so for us, before we start to progress them through the strength training, uh, you know, I need to know, or in the plyometric or anything else between there, I need to know that they themselves under their own uh, warrants and means are comfortable enough to land on that leg before I challenge them to do so. Um, and so for us, without ever pushing them there, it's a way for us to kind of record that, that instance over time, uh, have some measurements to show them and some data to show them, but really again, present them with a case where you can choose, you can jump off of this and land on it as well as, as, as hard as you need to. Um, but know that when you landed on your non-affected leg, you jump this high. And so subconsciously landing onto your affected leg, you metered yourself down and kind of placated a bit. Um, and so until you're confident to do that and work both ways, we're just going to stay here where we're at or we'll, you know, we'll keep manipulating around in that phase in that zone. Um, but around that time is where we'll also introduce the isometric back squat. Um, again, just a 
simple way that we can uh, maintain and repeat positioning uh, and repeat the same test. And we'll start to look at a bit of uh, rate of force development within that. Uh, and again, it's it's a almost you know broad view to look at the uh, the more narrow focus, but um, I'm looking for inhibition of the tissue. Uh, not necessarily that the peak force value is a measure for us of, of success there, and because it is closed environment, um, and for some of them, oftentimes it's a new test in general. So for them, just feeling a rigid bar holding them in one place. Uh, but we can control the positioning to bias, you know, particular muscles, and we in that instance we. Uh, get them a bit more vertical. We want to bias the quad and, and get away from the trunk, uh, sorry, posterior chain a little bit because uh, we're looking particularly at the knee. Um, but I want to see on their affected side, are they uh, subconsciously or even just neurologically a bit inhibited? Um, and earlier on, you'll you'll find, uh, and it's a bit minimal, but there's it's a, there's a difference there. There's enough difference to notice asymmetry that um, the non-affected leg will have a higher rate of force development than the affected leg. Um, but the affected leg will still get to the same peak force. It's just a slight slower ramp up there um and i i you know possibly there's speculate there's a number of reasons why that happens um but you know i also think there's we can't discredit and discount the idea that uh, i've thought about this more and more with we're dealing with rehabs um just the simple deconditioning and i've had to talk about this with some of our athletes like the injury itself has already happened and say in an operative sense uh the doctor's already gone in cut you open, sewn you back up, put everything back in place. The tin man's back screwed and bolted together. Um, it's a matter of reconditioning now. And I think we oftentimes have this conversation with a few physios and, and ours, uh, particularly is that, you know, the rehab process is, this is going to sound very strength coach bias. <laughs> Sorry to our physios there. Uh, but it, it's more about the reconditioning uh, at some point, um, depending on the injury. Obviously, there's a number of, uh, of injuries there that there is a, a longer time needed for tissue adaptation. And, but uh, let's say for like our ligament issues, the, the structures around the knee most likely were already somewhat uh, fatigued and trained at the time of injury. Um, you know, whether they can say if they were strong enough or not. Again, if you're not there in that instance to know what the athlete's going through, it's hard to say. But uh, we know that stress strain model says when the demands over, you know, uh, uh, supersede the capacity of the tissue, it's going to, it's going to, there's going to be a rupture or a tear of deformation. Um, and so we know that there was a stress demand that was higher than the capacity of that joint or that tissue. Um, and so in reality, we're just looking to see, can we improve that? That's a conditioning as a strength and uh, training model and aspect uh, versus a rehabilitative uh, aspect to it. And so really we're looking at to see, can we get these tissues to create enough force to create the uh, a robust joints and a robust action. And uh, you know, that changes for us throughout the, throughout those different phases. So when we get to the isometric phase and, and that kind of, part there uh, we're really looking at to see can the tissue create enough force to balance out with the affected side and at that point now we're looking to increase both because um, we're going to be under the assumption that the athlete probably wasn't fit and strong enough to begin with or at least from our standing because the capacity exceeded or was not able to, uh, to keep up with the demands um, and so it's a very rudimentary kind of way to think about it in some ways but again there's a lot of complex things that can go into it and we want to keep it simple from that uh, standpoint so we can dive into the, the individual pieces and, and become more specific as we need to along the way uh, but yeah, kind of went far off on a tangent from landing that's all right it's good uh, <laughs> don't worry um, but yeah, I mean, it goes back into the you know landing characteristics is one piece, but it's 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 going to be followed up with another action, traditionally speaking, and ninety percent of the time. Um, and so I don't, you know, often ask our our rehabbers and our physical trainers and, and our coaches to uh, we we teach landing mechanics as as a foundation. It's just a 
start because in reality it's it again is another form of reverse engineering because our ready our landing position should be our ready position right and so it's essentially we're it's a cycle of i've jumped i've landed now what's back to written next move again um and so we really are just saying do you know how to get ready when we're talking landing mechanics uh, and so that can be accomplished just the same as starting from ready and going into a movement we're just taking them from a movement and saying can you get ready for the next one and obviously again with that that uh, known inhibition that's going to be there from the athlete in particular rehab cases. Uh, if we focus on removing the inhibition, now we allow them to explore movement uh, in, a, in a way that can be expressed without, again, the dampening down without those asymmetries built in that may not be a functional uh, uh, or sorry, I shouldn't may not be a, a, a force asymmetry and they also might just be a functional asymmetry in the sense of their signaling processing is not happening at a, at a rate or is dampened down because of a number of things go in there but either way can we get them to decrease in inhibition so we can actually get into ranges get into forces um, and planes that are going to be needed to be practiced because those skills have been lost over their time of being injured as they got hurt they were out they were pulled out before they even had surgery. They had been, you know, removed from activity. Now they had surgery. Now they were mobilized for a certain amount of time. And now they're back into a point of, of diminished training because of the, the injury. So really, again, we've had a length of time away from skilled movement. And now we're asking them to regain skilled movement, but doing it in an, in an environment that doesn't allow them to express their skills and express those movements. So there really has to be a way to bridge those across. And so, again, identifying what those those landmarks might be. And oftentimes I find there to be just a bit of uh, lingering inhibition and we call them kind of phantom injuries that stay around more so than the actual tissue uh, or contractile inabilities that are there. Awesome. One thing that I fired over to you was a question on trunk rotation and that was followed that was because I'd, I'd read a i think it was an exploratory paper on sports performance reports.com from the guys in france and it was looking at again the the landing and the trunk rotations i think with a imu i'm guessing and um i just wondered if you hadn't you had any thoughts on that or whether there'd been discussions internally about whether that was worth looking at or not yeah it's it's i, I think it's a really it's a really cool idea and it's something that myself and some colleagues have talked about before again because you know often we're looking at force plates and it's just one <laughs> one uh, vector of force that's happening um and even if you have triaxial plates it's you know we're taking a, a segment of force that's being applied to the ground through a lever that's connected to another lever that's connected to another lever um and we're trying to accomplish all those uh, you know uh, accomplish an understanding of all those together and how it hits the ground when in reality again we know that across each of those segments and across each of those joints there's uh, a possibility and a likelihood that there's force being lost and or disseminated somewhere else um and so I think there is something into connecting again these these kinematic and kinetic dots together, if you will. Uh, you know, I looked at those papers that she actually sent over to me, and, and I, I thought it pretty intriguing. Um, and I like where their head is at. I think there's there's a maybe a little bit of chasing our tail a little bit there in the sense that uh, one, and I could be wrong. I, you know, I only read through it once, but um, I know they did use a, a triaxial. Um, uh, accelerometer uh, unit uh, that you know obviously worn on, on the top of the the trunk. So that within itself, um, <laughs> we're talking about reading into ground reaction forces. There, there's a whole litany of reasons, and they cited these within the paper as well. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we know that just 
wearing a sensor on the top of, of the trunk. Uh, one itself, the, the the garments that are worn to use those, it's really hard to make sure those stay in a rigid spot and they stay exactly where they are located so that your calculations are you know accurate from there on out. But just the, the uh, instance that, uh, or the idea that we're assuming that our center of mass stays relative to that unit. Um, and this is the same thing I was kind of just alluding to actually with the isometric uh, squat. Uh, where I place my center of mass above or about uh, my foot placement on the ground is going to dictate how those levers are going to manipulate my mass. And I can have the same fixed points at either end, but again, manipulate my mass center of mass differently around those and have similar forces across those and it could be varying forces across how I change that center of mass. And that's, I think what they were looking at in that paper is again, how does that trunk positioning affect ground reaction forces? And I definitely think there's something to that. Um, the part where that kind of get lost, or maybe I just haven't gotten to the point of understanding or, or read, read enough yet um, is again, looking at a counter movement jump, which is challenging over, only through a vertical axis how that's going to be indicative of the athlete's control through triplanar movement. Um, and I think there is a disconnect there because we know some athletes, I know of athletes that are very, very good vertically. Um, and especially within uh, a counter movement jump in that practice uh, that won't show much asymmetry at all. Uh, but as you take them into movement uh, across, you know, uh, horizontal, fascial plane like that, where they're now moving across uh, a locomotor pattern, and now they're going from a bilateral position to unilateral position and transitioning between those. Uh, their coordination of movement makes a big difference. And I think that was something they touched on in that paper, which I thought was really good, though, was essentially they're looking at that time between when the uh, foot contact hit the ground and center of mass relative to the foot, center of mass relative to the trunk. But again, that, that was based off of their video. So it's really hard to tell exactly where trunk was relative to the, uh, or sorry, center of mass was relative to the trunk. Uh, but Nonetheless, uh, the the cases they used, um, and we actually had a very, very, very similar case with one of our athletes this past year, one of our uh, famous soccer players. So it was actually fit right in line with their case studies. Uh, but what we found and, and what we've talked about is, yes, the, the angle of trunk as uh, the foot does strike the ground and essentially where is it relative to, um, I would say, their goal of foot strike. Uh, and so what I found, and we've all can, can relate to this, I believe, whether you're walking down the street and, you know, you, you think you're going to step off the curb and it's a little bit further than you thought and you kind of have that jolting action um, or you, you're going to walk upstairs and you miss the step and you kind of step back down. Uh, you know, what we have in our, in our system is this kind of uh, practice skill, right? I, I can anticipate how much force is necessary to propel myself up that step or to accept that, accept my mask coming down off of that ledge. Um, those are things we've already experienced and they're pretty innate. And these athletes have experienced that as they run, approach, you know, chop step and whatever they're doing to get to the ball or slow themselves down, change direction. Those are all practice skilled movements, like I said. Uh, but we know that under fatigue, our skill uh, uh, accuracy may, may deter and fall apart. Our, our muscular um, firing rate and or production, uh, force production may, may deter a bit. So we take that same kind of idea of what if they, that athlete just slightly miscalculated, right? They, they were aiming for their foot placement here and just got a bit outside. And now they're asking themselves very quickly and rapidly to assess 
the new gauge of movement and range, uh, assess the forces that are going to get there, um, but then also then doing it in a dynamic manner because their mass itself is moving and changing. And so uh, I struggle myself with taking a static assessment um, in a position where we're you know, just jumping vertically and just speculating how that's going to come across. Um, like I've, I mentioned that before, like, you know, our, our force place is one way to do it. Um, but I do like the idea of trying to find a, 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 uh, a kinematic uh, correlation between some of those kinetic movements we see again. We, we talked about this in our assessments of if we have a athlete that we'll say is very twitchy or, you know, elastic, if you will. Um, I know our track uh, proponents like to use those terms, they, that, that natural kind of stiffness they carry. Um, if I have an athlete that's very bouncing that way, uh, but has a low level of just muscular force production and strength relative to size and possibly a low level of mobility or, or controlled articulation, depending on how, you know, kind of assessment you use. Um, that's a high risk athlete to me, but I'd, I'd almost say it's more of a high risk athlete than the athlete that is, um, you know, forceful and slow and not twitchy or even weak and slow, not twitchy because they're not going to produce enough forces or move fast enough to put themselves in a position uh, or put themselves to a level of, of uh, demands that the, uh, the higher twitchy kind of uh, stronger athletes can do. Um, and so there, there definitely is a relative balance that needs to be there, or at least an understanding of their output to, to build up in the resiliency to withstand it. Um, but nonetheless, again, if we have an ability to understand an athlete's, uh, competencies and compensations in their movement uh to then relate that to the forces that they're going to incur and produce um i think that it, it would be pretty fruitful but you know it's it's one of those things where uh, yeah when it goes into classifying movement um and what's ideal or what's you know or it's not uh, I think Sophia Nymphia has talked about this uh in, in one of her papers but i uh, really enjoy her stuff but yeah she basically said the right movement is the one that got the, the task accomplished for the most part, right? Like you can say it was the right decision left, right. Uh, but if the, the, you know, the defender still got there and made the tackle, it wasn't the right decision. Most likely. Um, and so it's what is the right decision and what's the right compensation for that athlete, for their strategies. And, and one thing we can't overlook is that when we change or we look to change and adapt a piece of that athlete system, um, you know, we are affecting their system and, you know, if I make them stronger, do they have the cognitive and or neuromuscular awareness to handle that or to reappropriate that strength and actually use it? Uh, do they have, you know, again, the, this, the, the fascial intentional where the uh, fascial and, and, um, uh, kinesthetic awareness to understand proprioception and range of motion and when is a full extension and reach versus when do I need to guard and protect? Uh, and so just those pieces that go along with it, I think can't be overlooked. And so I, I, I like the idea of understanding again the, the kinematic sequences that go into it, uh, but again, it's just one more piece in the pot. Um, and you know, at, at some point, there, there's just this line. And I think this is the we get to as a uh, person working in the field and a practitioner versus a researcher. And I image that with the science part, like the we the scientists rely on the practitioners and the anecdotal evidence to again drive these questions to be asked. Um, but then there's just a natural gap and a separation between the researchers and what's going to get applied and what happens because you get to a point where you answer questions on the research side and say, oh, yeah, trunk angle, that was a big determining factor there. And there, there seems to be quite a correlation between that and ACL, ACL ruptures. Okay, great. Um, what's the methods to now train that? Is it, a, is it a kinesthetic awareness piece? Is it a coordination piece? Is it, is it something that they're lacking in their understanding of the movement? Is it a restriction in movement that they just have in general? Um, it, it, do we find any other anthropometric pieces that go into it? Is, you know, 
we talk about bone structures. So there's a, there's a whole, you know, like I said, another rabbit hole that comes along with that. Um, and for the practitioner, the day-to-day as of right now, um, it, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, it's easier, <laughs> uh, but it's more practical to say, how do I just keep making them more robust? Um, and can I get them to be more resilient in these ranges of motion? And if they get out of position, and I think there's something to be said as much of training uh, athletes in uh, capable means and intensities in disadvantageous positions as much as there is training them up in advantageous positions. Uh, prepare for the worst type of thing. Uh, obviously not throwing them to the wolves and just forcing them into bad positions as a heavyweight, you know, but there, there's, there's a bit of, of uh, understanding of, you know, and we think about this, we talked about, again, kind of the drop and landing mechanics. Um, some of the simple things you see, is, I believe it's in the FIFA 11 or whatever with their ACL prevention, but just the jump and perturbation, push them in the air, um, just dynamic landings. Uh, you know, we're purposely making them land asymmetrical, we're purposely making them land in a disorganized fashion, um, asking them just to practice organizing yourself. And it goes back to, the, again, the part of landing mechanics. It's just another way to say, get ready for the next move. Um, and if we really can practice this position or practice in a sense of, OK, so your trunk did get pitched forward or backwards. Um, do you know how to strategize that now? Uh, if we get to ourselves a position where we can actually expose them in those those uh, different me- mechanisms in different ways uh, and hope to just you know, rely on the good old said principle um, and get them to be more resilient and robust, uh, it'll be less of the mechanical uh, kind of aspect outlook of how do we get them to be perfect in these movements and these landings. Because at, at the end of the day, the, the game is the game, right? It's a competition and the opponent's, per- the opponent's goal is to get you off balance and, and off kilter uh, where you know, you're trying to combat that yourself. So it, the idea of removing the negative influence or removing uh, the poor postures and positions is is uh, a little misleading. But I do, I do think it's important to understand what those higher uh, risk mechanisms are, for sure. Because um, now, again, you know what to look for and what to, you know, pop, pop, <laughs> purposely train and and, uh, and adapt for. So, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty intriguing um, and definitely something we've looked at before and we talk about within our uh, training strategies, whether it be uh, manipulating squat, hinging and movements, um, or just how we load in different capacities. Uh, there's definitely something to it within being able to maintain trunk position. Um, but again, like uh, how you get to forward trunk pitch, uh, that doesn't tell you how the pelvis has moved about that, right? And there could be lumbar extension goalie because we're just looking at the one end point at the top of the axis. And there's a lot that happens in between it, just between the trunk, you know, between the top of the trunk and the, and the pelvis itself. So there's a lot to be uh, unpacked in that. But I, I like the idea of, of almost mixing those two together. Uh, we've had those conversations of wearing uh, an accelerometer while on the force plate. Uh, but again, that's just, there's so much into that. That would be need to be its own independent study and stuff that would go with that. So uh, yeah, that's it, it's it's a good thought. Awesome. Well, we just tipped over an hour. So I'm going to um, finally thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And what, if anyone's got any questions where they can follow up, whether, whether it's anything we've discussed or any presentation or whatever you put out there, where, where's the best place to uh, for people to contact you, Lauren? Oh, I'm working on that. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've been poor with the social media. Um, so I'm getting better at it. It's uh, uh, greenhouse underscore SP is nice. my uh, uh, Instagram and Twitter. i really poor on Twitter. I'm trying to do better. Um, uh, and uh, lgreen at ucsd.edu. That's the, the email for the school there. Um, 
Yeah, LinkedIn is is there as well. I think it's Lauren Green CSCS. Um, got a couple of things I've uh, contributed to on there, but uh, working on building out the social media stuff and a bit of online presence. I've I've been uh, living in a cave for the past thirty years, so working not on a bad thing. By the day, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> trust me. But no, thank you very much for your time, Lauren. Really appreciate it, and a big thanks to again to, to Eric for making that connection. It's an absolute um, pleasure to speak to you. Uh, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on and, and uh, pleasure to be a part of the, the podcast. And, and uh, again, just really kind of honored to be along with some of these contributors that have been on here before and a lot of people I looked up to and, and uh, look forward to listening to this all the time to see who else you have on. So it's kind of cool to see my name on there for once. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 303 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Lauren. So thank you to Lauren for giving up his time in a very busy schedule, in a very weird time. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Kitman Labs, and Blackbox Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So if you have enjoyed this episode with Lauren discussing force plates, make sure you check out episodes with Dr. Jason Lake, Phil Graham Smith, and Dr. Daniel Cohen for more information, great information, on using force plates and force plate analysis. So thanks for tuning into this episode and I will chat to you next week.